I'm really happy to be here today with Alistair Duckworth. Is, am I pronouncing that right, Alistair? That is, that is correct, yeah. Okay. And uh, Alistair contacted me via email and um, wanted to talk to me about his ideas, and I'm really glad he did because um, he's a graphic designer, so I'm always interested in the design aspect of things. But Alistair's also working on a book, and he sent me the first four chapters, and they're just very compelling and filled with ideas that I love. So um, I'm really happy to have the opportunity to talk about this, Alistair. Now, I wonder if you could give us just the maybe the elevator pitch of what your book is about, and then kind of go back and talk about your life a little bit and how you ended up here where you're interested in these kinds of things. Yeah. So the title of the book is The Golden Extremes, and that's to play on Aristotle's golden mean. And the premise of the book is that to live a good life, to um, achieve quality or excellence, or to be creative, um, what you have to do is not try and avoid opposing or extreme positions. You have to embrace both of them at the same time. Um, the golden extremes is well; it's a number of things. So it's kind of an it's also an initiative um, to help individuals and organisations to maximise the good that they do. Um, by embracing polarized ideas and values, um, the, uh, the the same principle goes by a few names. So some people know it as the coincidence of opposites. So anyone who's followed McGilchrist, Ian McGilchrist's work, um, he's that he uses that term. Um, some people go uh, call the same thing non-duality, um, which is a, a term I have a little bit of problem, a bit of trouble with because it, it suggests that you are trying to avoid opposites you're trying to only have unity rather than unity and diversity whereas uh, within the book particularly i go into how you want to have both those things you want to have the duality and the unity at the same time mm -hmm. um in terms of so that's the title of the book the the elevator pitch would be um it's been a number of things at the moment it's probably uh the an antidote to the dangerous doctrine of moderation because I think that moderation is a very dangerous thing. Um, it sounds good, uh, but in practice, it um, causes a lot of problems. And so, I'm trying to I'm trying to push into a positive form of extremism, uh, a, a positive form of polarization, which I think is the only solution to um, the, the 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 what we tend to call extremism, what we tend to call polarization. So that's a nutshell. Um, okay, yeah. so. That's that's enough for, as a as a teaser. Now, um, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? Um, what was interesting to you as a child? What was drawing you forward? Wow. Um, <laughs> so I've I've gr grown up in London. I've been a Londoner all of my life, apart from so London, England. Um, uh, I've been in London all of my life, apart from a brief escape to university, where I, I didn't go very far away. I went to I went to about thirty miles out. To the countryside for a few years and then came back again. Um, I've grown up uh, in a religious family, um, a Christian family. Um, we have it's a, we've been churchgoers, or we were we were churchgoers all of my ch childhood. Um, I've been in a lot of different types of churches, so charismatic, conservative, Pentecostal, Church of England, a lot of different places. Um, I. As you said, I'm a designer. I that's that's mainly because at school the only thing I was particularly good at was art. 
And so that made my my career trajectory rather simple, either be an artist or a designer or something or something in, in, in the creative industry industries. Um and and so that that as I realized that being an artist is 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 financially quite a challenging decision, um design seemed a good, sensible way to go. So having um finished school, went to art college, um, studied graphic design for uh Three, three years or four years, including a foundation course, which is something we do here, um, and then have been in the design industry ever since, uh, which is, is now just over 20 years. Um, feels to me quite a long time. Well, that's about the same time when I started thinking about this whole issue of how the uh, principles of design weave into every aspect of the universe. Yep. And... Uh, you can spend your whole life contemplating that. I mean, it's like, it's just so fascinating. And and I love your book, the way you have simplified these concepts enough to put them into kind of a, make them little nuggets that, that a person can carry around with them, but you've still kept the depth of what's underneath them. And, and to me, that's amazing because some of these ideas are so big in my head that I can't find a way to articulate them which is why i've got 350 episodes trying to put it into words and you well, did all that in i don't know the four chapters are what 50 60 pages i mean that's, that's extremely generous of you um i, you're, I you're, there's one aspect that is not in your book so it still leaves an opportunity for me to add something but <laughs> oh there's there's many things that aren't in the, aren't in the book I, I i think from being a designer my job is to take complex ideas or fairly complex ideas and make them as immediately accessible as possible. And so for me, the, the, the pleasure of the writing, or it's also the pain of the writing, but the pleasure of the exercise is to try and take something that's as deep as I can possibly get it and then make it as accessible as I possibly can. And so, and it's, it's holding that tension that's real, that's the pleasure for me. So if I can create a diagram or a paragraph that really gets to the heart of something, um, I, I'm not. I'm not particularly good at telling a story. I'm not very good at um, working with narrative, but I can get some. I can get a complicated idea and make it simple fairly well. And so that that's been the sort of driving force. How can I take this very nebulous concept, which to me seems so important, and then make it so that um, someone who's got no idea about the subject will be able to pick it up and, and get it fairly quickly? So that's. Well, so it's been I, a pleasure, I, but also go. On. I was going to say when I started the book. Um, <laughs> I noticed that you were, you have a lot of wonderful quotes in there, but um, you mentioned that it was something that G.K. Chesterton said that really stirred you to start yes. writing this book. Yeah. So would you like to talk about that a little bit? So, um, so when I was at university, so I was, there were two things that I was trying to get my head around. Um, I was a young Christian and I was, uh, I was just at the very beginning of my design um design life and i was trying to work out two the two questions i was trying to get to the bottom of was was firstly is there a formula for good design and then the second thing was is there is there a pattern to profound religious experience and these seem to be two very different questions very different areas and uh, i came to the conclusion that yes there was an answer to both those things but then the thing that really surprised me was that the answer seemed to be the same in both contexts and so um and, and that answer was paradox and so in, in, the, in the design realm, um, any good or any compelling piece of visual communication 
anything that really grabs your attention will do so because it it has a clash of ideas. It, it brings together two things that you wouldn't expect to go together, but it's not just arbitrary and it doesn't just, you don't go away feeling cheated. You, you discover that those ideas do actually fit somehow. And that, and that new fitting together sort of raises your consciousness. You know, it sort of shifts your paradigm and you go away sort of slightly enlightened by that experience. Um, and so that, that's in design, but then in, um, in, in, on the religious, uh, front, um, I remember having a conversation with a friend who said to me, we were talking about Christian faith, and he said, uh, he asked me what it was I found most compelling about Christianity. Um, and the answer I gave, which which actually was a surprise to me at the time, I wasn't expecting to say it, was that um, it, it was the irrational aspect of Christianity that I found most interesting. Um, and not, not by that, I didn't mean nonsensical. I meant where, where two things, again, the paradox situation, where two things seem like they... They couldn't go, they shouldn't go, and yet somehow they did. Um, and that, that, and I didn't know how to articulate that at the time. So I was kind of confused as to why oh, <laughs> that came out of me. Um, and so, yeah, sorry, remind me of your question. I've, I've slightly. Oh, no, you're answering the question. <laughs> yeah, you're answering the question. Um, G.K. Chesterton, you, Chesterton. you stumbled you. on this quote from G.K. Yes. Chesterton, and that motivated you to, motivated you to write the book. Yes. Uh, so there's a so he he wrote um, uh, an autobiography called Orthodoxy, which many people will know. Um, and in that book, there is a chapter called The Paradoxes of Christianity. Um, and within that, he looks at how Christianity just seems to be so odd, and Christ in particular seems to be so odd, um, and as, as he goes through the chapter, he, he shows that um, everybody seems to have a problem with Christ. Everybody seems to have a problem with Christianity. It, that those on the left left of politics find it to be too right-wing. Those on the right find it to be too left-wing. Um, and, and, then, and then he comes to the conclusion that, well, maybe it's not Christ or Christianity that's in the wrong. It's that other people or, uh, have, have got the wrong end of the stick, but have done so in opposite ways. And so it's actually that Christ is both left and right wing at the same time. And so those who are left to him, to them, he'll seem too right wing, but it's not because he, it's not because he, he's, he's off balance. It's just that they're off balance in the opposite way. Um, and it was, it, it, it was here that I first came across where he, he compares, although he doesn't speak of Aristotle directly, he speaks of um, Aristotle's golden mean here, or, or he, he speaks of, um, pagan ideas of, of balance within virtue. And he's very much pointing towards Aristotle's golden mean, which is where I then later compared Aristotle and Chesterton's ideas to, to create the concept, or, or not, or just to, to name the concept as the golden extremes. But that really, uh, Chesterton and then Pascal really got me thinking. Pascal's brilliantly paradoxical thinker. Um, he, he, he seems to, he seems to realize that the heart is more important than the head and the heart and well, the heart has its reasons that reason doesn't understand. Um, and so uh, the two of them really got me um, interested in, in sort of trying to get to the bottom of this um, form of form of faith or form of Christianity, which I, I hadn't really come across before. Um, One yeah, of the fascinating things about the book is it's not, um, it's not set up as a as a Christian explanation at all. Um, no. 
In fact, the quote from G.K. Chesterton is probably one of the only things in there that would have indicated to me that you were a person of faith, but um, but you're still laying out all these truths in a way that anybody could come along and pick up these breadcrumbs and come to uh, a gigantic kind of epiphany, I think, about many of these these issues. So the, the quote from G.K. Chesterton, because I just read it this morning, so it's fresh in my mind. I can't say the exact quote, but he's talking about the polar opposite of uh, the polar opposites that relate to courage in battle. Yes. And um, got it here somewhere Bear with me. It made me think of several things. And it, it, it's this idea of polar opposites of, of, of wanting to um, honor both extremes yes is you if you think of a guitar string it's pulled taut at both ends and that's what allows it to be a guitar string that's what allows yeah. it to make music there's yes. no music in a guitar string if you let go of one end i mean it would be like playing tug of war with a guitar string you're not going to get anything out of it right um but then i also thought about musical instruments like um wind instruments how you blow air in one end and the air mm. comes out the other end, but the air coming out the other end is entirely different than the air that went in. <laughs> and so you have these polar opposites, but what happens in the middle is this convoluted movement and, um, and form that is there that's, mm. that's adding to the expression. And so I wonder if there isn't some of that in this whole issue of polar opposites too. Um, I know that you said you were interested in the conversation that I had with Peter Beckman about Guardini's comment that if we mistake um, polarity for contradiction, we're going yeah. to run into major trouble. Yes, I have. I've got a slightly different take on that um, because, uh, from memory, Guardini says that, or ex examples of um, contradictions were good and evil being and non-being, yes and no. Um, and and those were, were simply, it was simply kind of a zero-sum game between those two. So it, um, you can't have yes and no, they just simply cancel each other out or, or one one annihilates the other. Um, I I find McGilchrist more compelling on this, where he, where he describes good and evil as having a, a kind of reciprocal relationship and same with being and non-being, I think. Where, um, well, the the thing that McGilchrist said on my channel when we were talking about this was that that um, evil cannot consume good. Yes. But good can consume evil and transform it. Yes. And and I thought that was a tremendous way of looking at it because it's not like like if I think of a polarity, if I think of a I forget what they used to call these in school when they'd set up these two values on the board, then they put a string in between them and you're supposed to pick someplace on the string. Spectrum. Spectrum. Yes. If you have a spectrum yes. between, between good and evil, the minute you step off of the good side, it's now corrupted by some of that evil Yeah, is the picture that you get. But if you think of, of the tension there and that good has the, the purpose of redeeming evil, then good can, can almost be like Pac-Man, <laughs> you know, <laughs> consuming and, and transforming the evil as it goes and yeah. uh, not lose the, um, 
I mean, the way it works in our lives, I think, is that we get we get stumbled by things and we end up on paths where we face obstacles or we face our own inner darkness as an obstacle and our lives get transformed little by little. And if we're allowing the redemption of those errors and those mistakes to change us, to transform us into something better, into into good, then all of those obstacles and problems all contributed to the final result in a way that is very mysterious. And so you have, you have to have both ends there somehow. Well, yeah. And that's, that's why I had, I found the contradict the idea that good and evil simply contradict each other. Um, it doesn't quite sit with me um, because it seems that it seems that in, 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 in biblical stories, you have God using evil for good. Um, if, if you think of a great story, often a great story. And I think, um, there's a quote by Hitchcock that's something along the lines that a story is as good as its villain. And so to have a really good story on a sort of a, a, a that has a, a moral um, problem in, in the, at the heart of it, you have to have good and evil fighting each other. Um, and so you, you need those two in order for the overall story sort of a level up to be good. And I think that that happens in lots of situations that in order, I think the, the breakdown of the polarity of good and evil leads to evil leads to the ultimate evil whereas the, the 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 coming together of those two in a sort of reciprocal relationship leads to an ultimate good and and one of the things that um mcgilchrist really helped clear up for me on this was that um they're not balanced um good is is ever so slightly in the in the sort of in 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 eternity in the infinite good is is greater than evil and that means that you can head towards the good mm-hmm. as as your goal um but all the while incorporating evil in the appropriate way um, in order to, to achieve that greater good. And it seems you're sort of always on this sort of oscillation upwards or spiral or, or whatever it might be. Um, uh, but, it, yeah, it really no, that, is that really... a paradox. I mean, I, when you were talking just there, the picture that popped into my head is a picture from the movie Mission, The Mission. I know it. I've not seen it. Oh, okay. Well, it's about these missionaries that go to someplace in South America, I think, and they face all sorts of terrible, brutal experiences, and they discover all sorts of things about themselves, and it's a very hard movie to watch, but one of the scenes, um, one of the guys is very aware of all the garbage that he carries around in himself, mm-hmm. and so I might have the story wrong. I just have the picture. I won't, be able to, I, I won't he's, correct you. He's, he's trying to climb up a mountain and he's got this big, heavy bag of weights on his back, all yeah, kinds yeah. of trash and garbage in this big bag. And it's very, very heavy. And he's trying to climb up the mountain and he, he, uh, he could make a lot more progress if he would just cut that thing off. right? Yeah, yeah. But he keeps struggling, struggling, struggling all the way up to the top of the mountain with this, with this weight on his back. And, I don't even remember what happens. I don't remember the end of the story. I'm just thinking about that weight um, as even people who are trying to work towards fitness, they will bind themselves with a weight like that in order to increase their fitness, increase their endurance level and all of that. And so there's some, there's something in there. I mean, I think we're supposed to cut loose all our garbage. There's a verse in Hebrews about, um, 
the weight that so entangles, you know, mm -hmm. break off the chain of the weight that so entangles. But even if we're not able to do that, the weight does its work. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think, I think that, I think I, this is a work, this is a thought in progress. So I, I'm not sure if I'm committed to it, but I, I do wonder whether when it comes to evil, um, you have to have it in your life somehow. Um, if you try and just avoid it completely, it will manifest in some way that you don't want. Um, whereas if you're trying to tackle and make, if you're trying to achieve good by tackling evil, it seems that then, if, then it has its place, but then you're doing something about it to try and transcend it. Um, whereas if you, if you just run away from it, if you try and make your life perfect and avoid any 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 problems and and get get away from that then you end up it ends up <laughs> coming to get you in ways that you're not expecting i, I suppose i think of um if if a, if a child is is raised in a very comfortable and uh, situation where there, there are no challenges and the parent looks after them in every possible way then uh, and, and perhaps spoils the child then problems will arise because they haven't been tackling the difficulty that exists in life which which could on one level be described in terms of evil, um, so a, a, a thought in progress, but something I've wondered about. Well, it kind of takes us back to um, the G.K. Chesterton quote that courage only um, show. Well, I, I remember C.S. Lewis saying something to the effect that every virtue is courage at the sticking point. Yes, and. Um, and courage can only show itself in the face of something that requires courage. Yeah, yeah. Right, and 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 that's probably true of all the virtues. They can really only show themselves in the face of the opposite. Yes, it's like and, in, in a in a work of art, the the positive image can only be recognized because of the negative space around it. Yes. Yes. Well, I suppose you've got two, haven't you? You've got the 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 clash between the courageous person and, and the difficult situation, and then they've they've also got to, to Chesterton's point, they've got to be trying to self-preserve and also put themselves in a dangerous situation at once. Mm -hmm. And so he he calls courage a contradiction in terms and describes how if you're a soldier, you always got to put yourself in in danger, but you're doing so in order to protect yourself. And if you go one way or another, then 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 you're lost. Mm -hmm. um, if you're reckless, you're you're gone, and if you're cowardly, well, then that's not going to work out for you either. Um, and this is this is where uh, it was it, it was great having Aristotle to compare to. Um, and I, I I so when I was in the in the first chapter of the book where I'm looking at at this more sort of extremes form of courage versus Aristotle's mean, um, I was I was worrying again and again that i was misreading aristotle and it's possible i still am because i thought i thought well chesterton seems so right about this and aristotle's right about so many things that surely he's saying the same thing but it does seem i'm going over aristotle uh, i've gone over him a number of times over the passages in his nicomachean ethics and he, he he is he is saying that you're you're trying to avoid these extremes go to the middle you don't want to have an one one is an excess and the other is a deficiency but the right action is is taking that middle and intermediate road, um, and it just I think when you do that, you end up. You've probably seen one of the videos I've sent you. You end up not at a place where 
you've got balance ultimately, but you have a place where you you just have neither of these two. You're not being, you're not trying to self-preserve and you're also not trying to take risk. You're just trying to avoid either of those. Um, and the mean to me seems like a, a kind of philosophy of avoidance, um, whereas taking the extreme seems to be embracing both things as if they're virtues and they become virtues when they're in relationship with each other. And then when they do that, they're, they're incredibly generative of, of life and energy and vitality. Um, and that's also where in, say, a political situation where you think, I don't want to be extreme left or extreme right, and so therefore I'll go for the moderate middle. It puts you in a very precarious situation because you're, you, you have no strength to push back against the, the, the dangerous extremes. And whereas if you're holding on to both at the same time, because they energize each other, it gives you a position of strength and position of power in order to push back on, on corruptions of, of going too, singly too far in any direction. Um, so I found that particularly interesting, the, the comparison of Ch Chesterton and Aristotle. So I think what you're talking about is finding the, the best aspects of both ends of the extreme. Yes. Because well, the, um, when when uh, when Peterson talks about the the masculine and the feminine, um, uh, archetypes, masculine feminine archetypes, on the on the feminine side, there's a definite negative in being too compassionate, too nurturing. Um, <clears throat> not allowing the child to be exposed to anything and um, wanting to keep the child so close that they never develop. And so there's mm. that whole negative, but then there's the positive side of being nurturing and caring and, and uh, imparting love and helping the child to grow and learn. And then on the other side, there's the uh, tyrannical father who has so many rules that everything becomes absolutely um rigid and no movement at all but on the other side there's the benevolent father who understands how to lead and understands how to challenge and and so you have two extremes and this happens in a marriage where you have mm. the extremes and you have these extremes of thought in each person yeah i mean i can definitely see <laughs> the, the monster mother in myself and then i can see the other side of me that you know really loves my children in a in a good and positive and and growing way yeah. and i can see the two extremes in my husband but what happens in marriage is that when those when those two are coming together in disagreement yeah. there has to be some meta level that helps you work out those two things and yes i mean in in a marriage you can have God at the center so that you have a, a triangle and God is up here. So as each of you grows closer to God, you get closer to each other. It helps you work out some of those things. But even if, if, um, if a couple doesn't have God involved, as long as they're committed to each other, they're not mm -hmm. going to divorce that commitment in and of itself will force you to work through those problems in a way that takes it a level up. So yes. you have a perspective that allows it to become more than it otherwise would be. Well, there's, there's something very interesting in that, which is that um, if we go back to courage, so 
um, self-preservation as a pole by itself simply degrades into cowardice. And if you have um, sort of taking necessary risk on its own, it degrades into recklessness. And so the poles find their 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 own existence by being in relationship with the opposite. Um, and so once they're in that relationship, then they 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 they're taken to this to a higher level of being. Um, and I, th I think that's the same in any polar situation. And so I think with, with the masculine and the feminine, the masculine finds its 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 health and and its true masculinity in relation to the feminine, and vice versa. Um, uh, and, and I think you can. So there's always a, there's always a a healthy in relationship form of a pole, and then a degraded, collapsed, separate, isolated form of a pole. Um, and it's, it's actually it's, it's interesting that um, if going back uh, in, in, with the with the golden mean, if 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 um, self preservation loses its relationship with its opposite, then it becomes Aristotle's vice of of cowardice. And in the same way, necessary risk, if it loses its relationship with its opposite, it collapses into Aristotle's vice of cowardice. And so it's it's interesting that he is avoiding two negative things, which which actually, when in relationship, become positives. And so when in your example of the, 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 the husband and wife, I think that I, I think we're, we're so used to seeing things in a kind of single minded way where it's an either-or situation, where it's either you or it's me. And so if, and it's kind of zero some way. So if you get what you want, then, then I will miss out on what I want. But actually, if you, if you, when you realize that, that that whole contains the two, two parts, then by having being, in order to get what you really want, then you have to incorporate the opposite. Or in order to be who you really are, then you incorporate the opposite. And then actually both, you, you become what you really are through, the, through that. And, and both of you transcend as you do. But that bit that involves being able to see both both opposites as as right at the same time, and I think that that we fundamentally, I don't it's, I don't know whether it's a, a modernist thing or a rational thing, um, or just a left brain issue that we have, but we we tend to be so single minded about these issues that we it, it, it it's got to be that, got to be that or that or in the middle. It can't be both at the same time, and that that causes all kinds of problems for us all the time. Yeah, I'm sure that some people listening to us will misunderstand what we're trying to say about the place of evil. Um, and we could spend the whole rest of this episode just talking about that. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm not endorsing evil. I'm not saying yes, I, I, be evil. I, I, and, and the thing is, I mean, um, I get a daily uh, little article from Ryan Holiday in about stoicism. And uh, today it was about Epictetus. And Epictetus started life as a slave. Mm -hmm. And his father was a very positive, um, not a positive thinker, not that kind of thing. But I mean, his father always said, the only one that can defeat you is you and your attitude. And mm -hmm. um, if you look at every everything that arises as an opportunity as a gift then it changes yeah. the way that you're going to approach living within that moment yeah. and even though his father was a slave until he died he felt like he had had a good life because he lived each moment with that viewpoint of this also is good this also is yes. good and yes. and so it's not a matter of saying 
um, evil is um, that we accept evil or that we think evil is good. It's just in context, the evil things that come to us can be transformed into good if we attend to them in the in the right way. Well, I, th I think of the, is it Paul saying that all things work together for good for those who love God? And if you would put that in Peterson, mm -hmm. Petersonian terms, mm -hmm. um, if you if you aim at the highest good, then everything that comes to you is a blessing. Um, and I think I think it's that sort of thing. And, and so to your point, I'm not. Uh, the evil is transcended. It's turned into something better, mm -hmm. um, and that's where that's where I feel that you, it, it has to be to some degree some sort of polar relationship. Otherwise, that couldn't happen. I think if they simply contradicted each other, um, then you wouldn't be able to have that redeeming of the evil into something good. Um, but I, I think in 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 John, is it that um, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness? I think I think in the infinite, in the ultimate situation, that is the case, and that is because I think that all these evil will ultimately be transformed to good. Um, well, Joseph's in, life jumps into my mind right now. I mean, the, the whole timeline of Joseph's life is filled with all sorts of evil things that mm -hmm. that happened to him, and yet, um, in the final event, it, it's all beautiful. It's just yeah. beautiful. It's, it's like it was. Um, it was one gift after another that saved a nation, saved two nations. And I think what happens to us is we get stuck in our own timeline and we think, you know, it's it's this moment here that matters. But like the like the polar opposites, that we don't know how long that string is and we don't know how it moves through time or what effect that the tension of that string is going to have on the next generation or 15 generations in the future. Well, the wonderful situation we've got with Joseph is that we, we can look back on it and see how it worked out because we don't have that. We yeah. don't have that for ourselves. Yeah. Um, Joseph in the moment couldn't do that either. <laughs> he wasn't having a great time. Yeah. Um, but I suppose, I suppose in, in real time, if, if you, to, to what you were saying before, if you're, um, if you're making the most of every moment, if you're aiming at the highest good in every situation, then it will, then it will work out the best it can be. Or, um, and and then when looking back, you might you might have that situation in a small way like Joseph did. Um, I mean, I'd I'd love to be able to know in advance how things are going to work out, <laughs> so as to be able to relax a bit. Yes, but that's the whole thing, you know. If you did relax, then it wouldn't, whatever it was, was going to happen, won't happen because, because a, a guitar string that is loose on one end is just flapping in the breeze. Yeah, well, so yeah. let's, let's move on to chapter two. You start out chapter two with a differentiation between shallow truths and profound truths. And I thought that was very interesting kind of breakdown. Well, so uh... I've, I've I've had a quick I just had a quick back look over it now and and the the beginning of the chapter is looking at how clarity relates to the the transcendentals so the 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 idea is that ultimately reality is composed of or or is in some way true good and beautiful um, 
and that all of these things relate to each other. And so anything that's true is also good, is also beautiful. And that doesn't mean that they don't get sort of mixed up at the, at the same time. And so you'll have situ- you can anyone can think of situations where where something that's that's beautiful is not good. Um, but I think that the, the what's going on there is that reality is complicated, and so it exists on a number of different levels. And so you can you can have something that's ugly and something that's good butted up against each other. Like you can think of someone who who's beautiful in in appearance, but their character is not very good. But at the same time, in terms of their appearance, if they're beautiful, then their appearance is also good, is also true. Uh, I think Chesterton says that um, for, if if a man can shoot his grandmother at a hundred yards, he's a good he's a, a good shot, but not necessarily a good man. And so, it, although although you yeah, although these things get mixed up together, ultimately anything that's true is also good, is also beautiful. But then the thing that surprised me that I found really interesting is that each of those things can be understood in terms of opposites coming together. And so I think I mentioned Niels Bohr and that, that on the, I'm saying that, um, yeah, to, to what you just said, that, that there are shallow truths and the opposite of a shallow truth is simply a falsehood. So if, if a fact is true, then its opposite will be false. But at the same time, when you get to deeper truths, such as the relationship between love and love and justice or good and evil or any of these things, you find out that it's actually two things can be true at the same time, to some degree. Um, now, then that works down the hierarchy. So, if you, um, because anything that's true works itself out, out in the world as good, and then the experience of that will be beautiful. If you've got polar truths at the top end with truth, then when they work themselves out in the world, then those, the, in a dynamic sense, the goodness will be the coming together of those opposite truths in a situation. And then we'll, when we experience that through the senses, um, that will become that will be that will be beautiful. But what will that beauty be? It will be the coming together again of these opposites, the experience of these opposing things. Um, and so, I mean, my mind always goes to branding for this sort of thing because that's where I work. And brands can often be very good at uh, very good examples of this sort of thing. Um, so. A brand like Airbnb, which is my this is my favourite polarity brand. Um, their their slogan is "Belong anywhere," and you think, well, that doesn't make sense. You can't belong if you're anywhere, and if you're anywhere, you don't belong. Um, and yet, that somehow they've they've created the infrastructure, or they've they've created the technology technological platform in order to make that happen to some degree. And so, you can go on holiday. You can find yourself, uh, you can go to a very unusual place and still feel to some degree at home. You might stay with a host. They might uh, tell you what's what's in the local area. They might introduce you to certain things. And so in some small way, they provided a bit of belonging in your going anywhere. And so at the top of the tree in the sort of truth section, you've got those two truths. In the goodness section, you've got the, the putting that into practice. They're providing as a brand or as a business they are providing whatever you what's required in order for those truths to come to be put into into uh, into action in your life as the as the customer, and then the experience of that whole thing is an is is to, is is a form of aesthetic experience of meaning, um, something again through the senses, but it's a it's it's a it's an experience of the good which is the beautiful, and so, and and, well we might get onto this in a bit or or leave it for another time but. Um, 
I, I've I've been I've worked over the last sort of five ten years to try and make a way of of conce conceiving of business and brands in terms of sort of archetypal truths that are then put into practice, and then when they're put into practice, the experience of that for the customer is something beautiful. Try and move our thinking about business and brands away from just materialistic to meaning. But to, to come back to what you were saying about um, uh, what's covered in the second chapter of this book, it's it's how how the relationship between the true, the good, and the beautiful, and then how you put that into practice in a creative process. Um, well, when you were talking, it, it just came into my mind a quote from a book that I've been reading by David Bohm, the physicist who was a contemporary of all those guys in the mid-20th century. Um, yes. He wrote a book called, well, he, I don't think he wrote this. I think his, um, those who inherited all his papers put this together after he died because it was published in 1995. And I don't think David Bohm was still alive then. I could be wrong, but um, the book is called On Creativity. And it's all of his ideas about art. And yeah. in there, he's talking about goodness. And he said, in his mind, the etymology of goodness is to gather. And so the whole idea of beauty is to gather things in such a way that they fit. Mm -hmm. So goodness and beauty fit together that way. And I thought, that's pretty interesting because mm. in all the explorations that I've been doing, I keep coming up against this idea of fittedness, um, how important measurement is in, in physics um in everything how important measurement is and and fittedness is really what um well i don't think you can take it apart fittedness is what makes things work together but yes. things work together because because they're fitted you know i mean yes. it's it's you have to have both at the same time and that and it's when an artist is when i'm trying to paint a painting i'm working for this thing where every stroke fits the whole so that yes. there's this later on you talk about multiplicity and unity and yes. that all of the strokes that are in a painting just disappear when you look at the painting you're only seeing the whole but yeah. all those pieces had to be fitted into the context each of them for a purpose and all those purposes are well of course i i get on this hobby horse all the time but Thanks. Unity, <laughs> harmony, contrast, yes. um, dominance. And we can talk about that, dominance. That That's why the mean doesn't work because there has to be dominance to provide unity. Without dominance, there can be no unity. Yes. And then repetition, variation, gradation, and balance. I remember, I, I, I looked for it. There was an episode you did, I think with another artist, where you held up a piece of paper and you had the polarities um in lines i was trying to do some sort of a visual representation of it but I, i've ended up doing the same thing but it's impossible <laughs> yeah it, it's no absolutely to your point i uh, well i recently saw some uh, visuals where was i looking at this um some video i was watching this morning and they had some visuals of not straight lines like that, but many, many curved lines and, you know, almost like a big bowl of spaghetti. That's the way they say a woman's brain looks, by the way, it's like spaghetti because there's so many connections. Everything connects, you know, um, 
supposedly men's brains are more like a set of boxes where everything has its own place, but a woman's brain is like all these connections. And um, anyway, enough of that. Here's a quote from chapter two. A helpful way to think about these deeper truths or ideas is as creative energies or patterns. I thought that was terrific. That these yes, deeper I, truths are creative energies or patterns. And um, you go on to say that there's um, two forces of one power, dynamic marriages that give rise to new things. So the two forces of one power, that's uh, that's um, from the poet uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And um, he, he was... Uh, he was a very interesting guy. He's someone who's been very important to me. Um, but he was uh, 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 trying to bring together science, art, philosophy, um, theology, and um, at the bottom, at the, the the foundation for all all his sort of streams of thinking were was polar opposites. And he described them as the two forces of one power. And so they were opposite forces: one kind of expanding outwards, the other one coming in. And it's through that. That creates the tension, but also that creates the unity, which which creates the the, the fittingness because it's it's that overall coming together as one power that pulls all the all the fitted parts into into relationship with each other. So he said so, that expanding out and pulling in. Uh, he he describes them as centripetal and centrifugal, which because is is really interesting. David Bohm talks about that in in his whole physics thing about the the explicate and the implicate order and yeah. the um the implicate order is the enfolded everything is enfolded up inside and then unfolding outwards yes um yeah that, and that seems to have that seems to have parallels with persig's static and dynamic quality yes yes i've um, had have you ever um talked to sevilla king i've not talked to her but i've mm -hmm. I've, I've watched some of the episodes between yeah. you two yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, we tried to dig down to the bottom of that, but there does seem to be a lot there with this whole idea of quality being that which draws. Yes. Um, Coleridge uses uh, two, I think they're medieval expressions for nature. Of uh, he calls it um, natura naturans and natura naturata, and one is again. A sort of enfolded dynamic life of nature and the other one is the material expression that it produces and so to go back to what you were saying about ideas being these dynamic energies um and i think of mcgilchrist saying that there's a there's a left and right brain interpretation of everything in the world and so, so often we think of ideas as concepts as sort of abstract static things that are in the left brain whereas uh, living ideas sort of archetypal forces so just, I mean, it's it's a, a shallow example, but to go back to the the Airbnb situation, the idea of belonging and the idea of being anywhere they're not they're not simply concepts in that situation. They are they are forces, and and one is going outwards anywhere, and the other one is coming inwards is belonging. And so it's this, just like you have with a bow a, a bow and arrow, you have the string that pulls inwards, and then you have the limbs of the bow that pushes outwards. And this is a dynamic that you get in, in every polar situation. There's always one that's outwards and always one that's inwards. And it's, it's, that, it's that that creates the tension between them. I mean, it's that that's what, that's what makes the matter, the sort of dynamic marriage productive 
in a creative context. Um, I mean, just to go back to uh, beauty, beauty being diversity and unity. Diversity is outwards, unity is inwards. And I thought it was interesting you saying that um, every brushstroke in a painting um, disappears into the whole. But I wonder, I wonder, do, do they not keep their individuality at the same time? Because um, I think with a, with a really great painting, you look at it and you you see the whole, and then you see a part, and then you come back to the whole, and then you see another part. And so they don't lose there's a their... lot of there's a lot of parts that are underneath other parts. <laughs> but <clears throat> even though they get covered up, they yeah. they had their purpose before they got covered because when they yeah. were on the canvas, they were creating a certain context, and then you're yes. responding to that context. Yeah. And then even when you cover it, there's a purpose in the covering. I mean, it's almost yeah. like in the scripture when it talks about all the different parts of the body and some of them are to be honored and some of them are to be covered. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, it's like that. I used well, to you... do this thing sometimes where I would go like me to a fundraiser or a party or something like that. And I'd have a big canvas set up. I'd have a bunch of paints and everybody that came, I would give them a brush load of whatever color they wanted and they would put a mark on the canvas, whatever mark mm -hmm. they want. And I mean, it's a very interesting process because a lot of people are terrified to even <laughs> put a mark on the canvas, even yeah. if there's no consequence involved, you know. Um, Someone will judge you on your mark. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But then when, after I got the whole canvas covered with all this chaos, then my job was to turn it into a painting before the end of the evening so that it could be auctioned off. And some people would come by afterwards and they would say, well, I like your painting, but where's my mark? <laughs> I say, well, your mark had a purpose because, you know, if you had a red mark, maybe that caused me to respond with some green over here. Uh, and maybe yeah. maybe it caused me to darken this area and lighten that area. And so every mark matters. Every yes. single thing matters, but they yeah. don't all show. Yeah. And I mean, we're so preoccupied, I think, with... Um... Well, I, I was I was wondering the other day about using an, an illustration in a in a talk of having an object on a white having having the the, the duck rabbit illusion and saying to people, "What do you see?" And, uh, and of course, what some people are going to see ducks and some people are going to see rabbits, but then bring to the attention that nobody mentions the white space around it, mm -hmm. and yet the white space is absolutely essential for for the, for for even being able to consider the question. And we're so het up on on the the dominant aspect of an image very often that we don't give due credit to all the parts that are the, that are the support for it. Um, I wonder if that does that play into your what you were going to say about dominance. Well, I'm going to have to think about that for a second. But while you were talking, this picture came into my mind of many years ago. I was at a baby shower, and the game for the baby shower. Yeah. Was that we're all sitting in this room, you know, we're at the baby shower and a woman comes in with a tray of objects. Yeah. She brings the tray around for each person to look at the tray. And then she goes out and we all have a piece of paper and a pencil. And we think we're going to have to write down all the objects on the tray. <laughs> but the question they asked is, uh, what was she wearing and what color were her eyes? <laughs> not a fair it's not a fair nobody challenge. nobody 
got the whole picture, right? Yeah, yeah. We're so focused in on. And this is a paradigm that I think about a lot um, because it's one that um, Owen Barfield brought up in the book, Speaker's Meaning. And yeah. it seems to me to fit a lot of things and that's accuracy and expression. Yeah. And we get so focused on the accuracy, counting bits and, you know, trying to say, oh, there was a, there was a screwdriver on there and there were, you know, uh, three petals from a rose. And, you know, we've got all this stuff in our mind and we miss the big picture. Just like, um, I used to write, it took me a long time to realize it was a lot of people. I always could only see the black dot on the white paper when I looked at them. Yes. You know, what was the one defining feature that was driving me crazy about that person? Instead yeah, yeah. of being able to see the whole rest of the page, you know, all the beauty that was there. And yes, there's that one little mar, but you know, my my life is all spotted too. <laughs> so, um, but, but tell but me that, more about I, I'm, I'm intrigued. I, I've not come across this. Um, I, I just uh, um, want to know more about what those words mean in terms of accuracy and expression. Oh, accuracy and expression. Um, what was he getting at? The whole book, Speaker's Meaning, is about the idea that Well, he takes four chapters to get there. In the end, the, the big story is that um, every single word is um, metaphorical before it is literal. Yes. And, yeah. and, but when he's talking about accuracy and expression, um, I can't remember what he meant, but what I mean when I use it yeah. is that, um, Accuracy would be like the materialist reductionist view of science okay. with accurate measurements and everything has yeah. to be very precise. But expression would be more like the, the right hemisphere of the brain with, with the openness and the um, yeah. um, ability to take in the whole and yeah. um, you know these kinds of recognitions. That would be expression. Okay. And accuracy would be the other side of like quantity and quality would be okay. the breakdown. So, so it breaks it, it, I find it an easy category for a lot of things, but maybe, yeah. maybe it's not as intuitive for other people. That's interesting. I, I just, I, I just wasn't sure off the bat ex exactly what, what you were meaning by those. Well, I mean, um, it's a good thing you asked me because I go around thinking, well, everybody must know what I'm thinking. <laughs> Being a human being, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, one of the things that's, just, that's occurred to me recently is uh, I'm I'm part of a church, a local church, and just thinking about what makes the community work. And so often we think that it's the explicit, um, easily pointed out things that make a community work, um, whereas it is often the white space around the object or the the supporting marks in the in the painting that makes everything hold together and we can give a lot of and i, I i'm i'm not being down on on the explicit elements of a community but often it's when we, we're often quite we we don't easily see all the all the supporting stuff 
and I don't I don't mean that simply and as in all the good deeds that are going on in the background it's just the implicit stuff the the way we relate the how we we interact with people the at our church um there's a, there's a couple who um the, the husband is, is brilliant at production of the church and makes everything happen and um his wife does um uh all the refreshments and they're they're absolutely fantastic at this in turn they'll, they'll arrive every week be there set up like machines and just make a space where everyone can be and it's so easy just to not so it's just to get used to that and then not see it. And I th- and yet I think it makes an enormous part of the the, the experience of being there is um is is that bit that you you don't see because it's not explicit. Um and I suppose there's a, there's a, there's sort of tension between the, the balancing of that explicit and implicit elements of that situation. But it's just something that I th- well, I think I'm also sensitive of the to this. Explicit are you thinking of things like um Oh, the quality of the messages and the I think so. way that the yeah, how clear the message does was outreach and all of that kind of thing. The things you can clearly point to mm-hmm. rather than the, the 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 body language in conversation or the all 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 the things that would be right brain stuff. Well, um, I clearly remember I became a Christian when I was 32. I clearly remember walking into this church. I had been in a few churches before that, but never for any good reason. (laughs) Um, Mm. And so I walked into this church and I don't remember the message. I don't remember the music. What I remember is it seemed to be filled with light. And there were all these couples and families that clearly loved one another. And the husband Mm. had his arm around the wife and, and there was a lot of joy in that place. And, that was so weird to me. I had not seen that before, certainly yeah. not in a church because every other church I'd ever been in was kind of a dark place and people sat in the back and tried to get out as soon as the thing was over. And uh, mm-hmm. so to walk into a place that had that kind of an ambiance had a huge impact on me. Mm-hmm. And I think also because the people probably reached out and were friendly and 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 those are things that you know don't come as part of the outreach package of the church really um i think even a small thing like a clean bathroom can make a tremendous impact on a person and who remembers the person who's cleaning the bathrooms nobody remembers that person unless they're not there (laughs) (laughs) they just need to go on holiday every now and then for an extended time and then everyone will appreciate them well i think i think that one of the reasons that, that these things bother me is because working as a designer um so much of what you're doing is implicit communication and so you get used to caring about that sort of thing you get used to other people in a client context not seeing and not caring about that sort of thing um and so it's kind of i mean it'd be the same I w- i'm sure with you being an artist that it's it's an education in right brain in a right brain way of approaching the world where you begin to notice all the things that that make up reality that are not the obvious ones that you can point at um and yet they're the ones that actually are the real uh are really what's core to what's going on um, so well, i, I think well, I'm just what occurs to, that to me is that what you're doing 
when you're talking about all these uh, corporate mottos and and uh, ways of packaging their their advertising and so forth, I'm sure there's people listening. I know that there would be people who aren't listening who would be saying things like, "Oh yeah, you know, corporate greed and all they're interested in is selling product and blah blah blah." But what's going through my mind is that because you have in your mind a picture of how this can be used for good, yeah. then the way in which you approach it, the way in which you um, teach other people how to do this, you can actually create an atmosphere within the companies of being concerned about the the benefit to the customer and um, approaching it from an angle of um well goodness i mean it, well, just, i mean like so much goodness in what you're doing um that, that it would be nice if that were the case um it, and occasionally it is the case uh so, so much of the time as a designer that's the goal you, right uh, that, that's the goal <laughs> yeah um, but so much of the time you're you're working for a company that's existed for a long time the founder has died a long time ago it's been passed down from one person to another they're trying to make as much money as possible for shareholders whoever's in the position of power is in that job for a little bit, then they will go and get another job somewhere else. It's a means to an end. And so for almost everyone there, it's a means to an end. There's very little end in itself. And so when, you, when you're brought in as a designer to, to up, update the brand or evolve the brand, it's very much, it's very much a, a facelift without, a, a lot of, without much change of character. And so if, if there isn't good character in the, in the, in the company, that exists there already there's nothing that i can do to improve that i can give it a really good facelift but it won't be much more than that uh, at the end in the end at the end of the day um whereas if you have a small if you have a a new company that started up and it started up by people who have a a good sense of meaning they're not materialists to the core and so therefore they can see the value of making something meaningful and sustaining something meaningful then in that situation you can help help a person like that to see more clearly um, how to make a meaningful company um but that's that's that <laughs> there aren't a lot of those around sadly um well uh, even even in a even in the other kind of a company if you come up with a kind of a design for their logo or their motto or you know whatever you want to call it that um it has this goodness embedded in it it's kind of like a little seed it has to have it's an something. impact on people. I mean, some of the examples that you use in the book of um, other sayings like, you know, um, belong anywhere. You had yeah. some other polarities from other companies. I can't remember. I mean, a famous one that's not used anymore, HSBC's, um, the world's local bank. But I don't, they, they didn't, they're not using that anymore because they couldn't be true to it. And so they've had to move, they've had to move it on. I mean, it's a shame because it's such a brilliant uh, expression. Um, and there, there are there are a number of businesses that have realized, or the, or at least their their advertising or design agencies have realized that if you bring together these opposing ideas, it'll it'll make the the brand more meaningful to customers. But underneath, but but beneath the surface, there's not a lot that's changed. Um, I think that the, the the major problem is that we're all materialists. Um, we all think that everything ultimately comes down to particles of matter and that there's no meaning and we just bring meaning to the table it's 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 what we do as human beings but there is no actual meaning in the universe 
And so if you're if that is your operating system, then it's very hard to do to 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 create or um, look after meaning in the world. And I think what's I've found so exciting about or many of the discussions you're having, but uh, the little corner of the internet discussions and Jordan well, Jordan Peterson seemed was has had a huge impact on just raising conversations about the possibility that matter isn't the ultimate thing um that that actually meaning is what produces the material world around us and i think if if i i feel that without that paradigm shift in a person on at least some level of depth i don't know how they could build a business that ultimately doesn't work for just material ends i think either either and maybe maybe that could happen just at a, at a very intuitive gut level i think you get great leaders who sort of intuitively operate that way even if their worldview is rather materialistic um but what i'm really keen to do is try to work with people who are who are coming out of that materialism who are wanting to make meaningful businesses and, and and therefore meaningful brands that express that the meaning of their business and 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 I, and and that's where polarity can be really helpful because i think that if 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 ultimately everything comes down to a relationship between opposites if all being works like that but all meaning and all good works like that too then if you can find the particular ideas that are in conflict in the in the in the place where you are in the work that you're doing then you you can consciously do you can be consciously making the appropriate form of good for wherever you are um and so that that that's a possibility it's a very difficult possibility um but at least it's a possibility and so that's that's something that really excites me well it seems like the as you're talking about polarity now i, I can't remember is it chapter three where you start talking about constraints um because um, that's one of my favorite hobby horses too is the whole idea of constraints but even the whole just issue of uh, polarity in itself is a kind of a constraint because yeah. if you if you're working on branding and you confine yourself to this to this polarity then you have to dig deep to find all the meaning that's contained inside that polarity and once you get started you're probably not going to be able to stop i mean the, one of the first times I ever did is I was taking this class where you had to do a series of 20 paintings, all of the same image in the same rectangle. Yeah. And it took me a while to break through, but I broke through right around maybe less than five or something like that. And then the ideas started pouring out. And by the time I got to 20, I could have gone, I could have kept going for another hundred paintings easily. I had yeah, yeah. so many ideas. I couldn't shut off the flow. Yeah. But it's because of that tight constraint, right? And yeah. and I think the same thing happens when you start with a, a polarity, like even accuracy and expression. I started making lists of all the things that fit underneath there, and yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's it's quite extraordinary. Well, I think that's the it's the nature. Like freedom and constraint are a, a very clear polarity that we we all live with, and it's and the, and it create. How do you have to say? Um, I think creativity always involves a creative itself. Creativity itself is a polar, is a polar dynamic because creativity is a form of um, directed play, and so in play you have to have that freedom, 
Whereas, but at the same time, you are going to be, there's going to be internal constraints within whatever game that you're playing, speaking quite broadly. Um, and and so when whenever you have that opposition, that's going to be generative of something. Um, I think McGilchrist talks about how, on your, carrying the subject of um, constraints, how how friction is required in in order to move. Mm-hmm. And you think that friction uh, friction is going to stop movement, but actually, no, friction is what makes movement possible. And the same with freedom. You you can't have freedom unless you have constraint because it becomes you be, you've got nothing to push off against. And so you've got that again. You've got that sort of inward inward movement of constraint with the outward movement of freedom. And it's those those two things which create that energy. Um, well, one of the reasons that I'm so high on this stuff is that it seems to me that like even that idea of McGilchrist that without friction you can't move yeah um that kind of a principle if scientists took that kind of thing seriously and understood the implications of just that one thing you can move outside of friction and understand that from many different levels but implication of that drives all the way down through the smallest particle and all the way out to the cosmos, I think it would change the way that they do their science. It would change the way that they come up with their theories because, um, yeah, I mean, it's because they, they run away. So the creativity being the directed play, first of all, they run away from creativity because that sort of implies there's a creative force of some sort, you know, a creator. Um, so they run away from that, but then the directed play aspect of it, they might be willing to look at the play, but they don't want to look at the directed side because that also it's, implies there's something else there, right? Well, it's the teleology, isn't it? It's the, it's the mm-hmm. purposefulness, which is, and my take on it is that it's it's a rather rational left brain thing that modern science has become in many ways. and And one of the aspects of, the left brain is that it doesn't see things in terms of purpose and teleology. And so it it sees the world in terms of objects and objects aren't by their nature purposeful. Um, We can apply purpose to objects and somehow we bring that to the bear to bear from somewhere, but actually those objects are not purposeful in themselves. Whereas I think we're seeing more and more sort of right brain orientated scientists. I mean, McGilchrist is a good example of someone who is seeing the universe as having is moving towards something um, that that at the at the bottom is not a material um, foundation, but a but a but life is the thing, and that life is something that brings forth um, that brings forth matter. Um, again, on on the the polarity front, he see, um, um, Coleridge sees life as that which produces unity and diversity. It's a dynamic power that produces essentially beauty um but it's the same for being the, the it's kind of the equation for being and the equation for beauty are the same thing um and so uh I, I think we are seeing more and more scientists who are seeing life as fundamental and life as the the driving force and that and, and that does completely change everything um it brings purpose back it brings uh, um direction back and therefore as you say it brings creativity back um which is extremely exciting um and then also you've got a situation where you can you can science actually then talks to art and talks to theology 
talk, uh, because because they if life is the thing that's behind all of them um then that that becomes the 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 uniting piece of the puzzle um and then and then and then we can have discussions across uh, across boundaries in ways that we couldn't do before um which is just <laughs> supremely exciting yes it is um but i've had conversations with quite a few of these people that sort of play around the edges there but they and and they're perfectly willing to see life as having um some generative acting back on the yeah. the uh, the multiplicity um but they still see everything as starting from physics and making its way up and then the cells and then the cells join in communities and then those communities somehow join together to make multicellular organisms yeah and and then the only way that life occurs is this sort of building up, building up, building up until you get life and then life can act back yes. and then life can have purpose. Yeah. And so they're, they're talking about that more now than they used to, but they still see everything as coming from the bottom up. Yeah. And the more that I've thought about it, I don't understand. Like when, when two humans come together and, and you, you have the sperm and the egg and the sperm and the egg forms a zygote. The entire human is contained in that zygote. An yeah. entire human being, the whole is there. It's yeah. not a cluster of um, communities of cells. It's one cell that yeah. contains the whole. Yeah. And so I don't know if, I, if I'm just not intelligent enough to see what they see, but they think that they can see a way that that strictly by ran, random chance in evolution, maybe not random. I, I talked to somebody. I just posted the video today of a, a new theory that life might arise out of um, harmonic resonance, like like a piece of music. Yes, I but that. still, that piece of music is um, responding to to the relaxation of forces in in the universe in such a way that that it arises but it's still all based on the laws of physics um and it still starts out with one and then moving out into uh cells becoming communities of cells that become like an organ within a multicellular. I mean, it's still starting from the bottom up and then having yeah. this, this life that comes back down. And so they, so at least they're getting this sort of circular picture going, but it's still, it's still at bottom. It's still materialist. Yeah. And, um, but I, I just, I can't see it that way. I just can't see it that way. And I just wonder if it's a lack of intellect on my part that I can't understand how these cells could be joining together to make organs and become these communities that are part of an organ when the way that the, the entity is reproducing is with a male and a female 
coming together and forming a zygote in which the entirety is there. Hmm. Did that just come along at some point in the evolutionary process that the entirety was there? Before that, did we have little livers <laughs> reproducing and hearts reproducing <laughs> and then all kind of clustering together and becoming a living being? I mean, I don't, I just can't picture it. I listen to them talking and it all makes sense as they're talking about it, but then I just, I lose the thread somehow. Yeah. Well, I, I can't comment too much being merely a graphic designer. Um, so I, I find these things very interesting, but I, I it go it gets to levels of complexity. I, I just can't interact with. Um, but I suppose I, I am encouraged by the fact that again, people like McGilchrist are not seeing things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and he's seeing, you know, he, he talks about the, um, what is it, that that relationships come before the things that they produce. Mm -hmm. And so there's, and I, I, I and then on the, the life front, there's something that Coleridge says. Um, he's asked, what is life? And he says something along the lines of, what is not life that really is, which is a bit of an odd thing to say. But he's basically saying that could there be anything that exists that is not in some form alive? And so even, even atoms and molecules and atoms and smaller than that, they have some form of life in them because they have, they're not built out of parts of what you were saying. They, they have a unity which ex is expressed through diversity. Um, I think, uh, I, I could be wrong on this, but I, I, I think Goethe's science touches on this a bit. Mm -hmm. The idea that actually life is is primarily a unity, which is expresses expresses itself through diversity, whereas whereas we often think, um, in a very left brain way, that actually we we put bits together and then we end up with something, whereas actually all of nature um, is is a is a is a unity which just expresses itself. And this this seems to be the nature of sort of organism versus mechanism. An organism is something which is a whole and, and all the parts are a picture of the whole in their own particular way. Um, whereas in a mechanism, it's kind of a shadow of an organism in that it has, um, there is a totality and all those parts play their part in the whole, but you could swap one out for another. Or if one went, if you took a brick out of my house, the house would probably still stand. Whereas if, as, as I've discovered recently, if, if something goes wrong with a ligament in my knee, my whole body is compromised because everything, that, that the whole body is, is, is sort of interpenetrates every other part of itself. Mm. Everything, everything is a totality. It, it expresses itself as, as, as diversity, not a series of bricks built together to make me. Um, and so that, that totality contains the life or is an expression of the life. Um, but that's kind of where I run out because I I, I don't have the the scientific understanding. Um, I think probably I like you, put, you. I hope you put that in your book because that was just beautiful. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if I can remember what I've just said. Well, I'll I'll have a transcript <laughs> of it. I thought that was wonderful. Um, but I I think probably like one, you. Even if even one cell in your body goes rogue, you're ended. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um. I, th I think probably like you working as a designer and you being an artist, 
we've probably we've probably seen the purpose that that creates um, the unity of a piece so often that it seems so it seems so obvious to us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and when I'm working, when I'm working really well, it's almost it's it's not as if I'm doing it. It's as if life is happening through me, and I'm producing something. And again, it's not me making abstract or rational decisions a lot of the time it's something is coming into being through me um i mean that's that's at the best moments a lot of the time i'm just trying to grind something out to meet a deadline but when i've got time and space i i feel that process of of, of life working through me to create something um and that seems to, that seems to me to be what happens everywhere in nature um again going back to Coderidge, he's got a great quote that works of art they have they have a life which we bring to them so, um but every, everything that's beautiful has life in it. It's either it's either it's either part of nature and therefore alive, or we give life to it. And so, a painting is alive. A table is alive in in that we it 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 has life through our consciousness, our conscious participation in it. Um, and so we give it we give it unity and diversity through our participation. And so even in even in man made human made objects. There is still that life that comes through us. Um, I'm 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 rambling on now. No, no, I'm, it's all making perfect sense to me. I, and I was going to say, um, just this morning, I was listening to a panel discussion from 2013. I think it was with Rupert Sheldrake and May Wan Ho and Gerald Pollack and some other alternative thinkers, mm. and uh, and they were talking there was some agreement amongst the group that basically everything has some aspect of life to it. Um, I mean, certainly when you look at an electron, what's holding that thing together? You know, I mean, there's, there's all that motion. So, so there's, there's something, there's something there. Um, yeah. I remember seeing an illustration once that Carl Friston was doing when he was talking about how to distinguish, you know, he's always talking about the Markov blanket and what, what parts are active states and what parts are, um, I can't remember, it's two states, it's the active and the other one. Um, but he he does this illustration where he drops a, a droplet of ink into a glass of water and it just di- disperses. Yeah. But if if you drop a drop of oil into a glass of water, it holds together. Yes. And and life is like that. If if um if that ink would come back up into a hole inside the yeah. glass of water, you would say, well, there's something something about that ink. It yeah. must be alive somehow, right? Yeah. Because it's holding together. So the things yes. that hold together do seem to have something. They have some directionality or they have some boundary or they have some purpose. Yes. And it does seem like there's some kind of life there. And as one of the panelists said, if there is a little bit of life everywhere, then you don't have to announce all of a sudden you found how it got in here in the first place because well no precisely no absolutely um and it but it also uh it also changes the way we think about 
how we live our lives because we don't survival is no longer the thing life is the thing and so and with survival it's either on or on or off you are <laughs> you're alive or you're not whereas with the life you can have greater degrees of life and then you can then then when you get to the arts or humanities then you're experiencing greater expressions of life and and, and a great piece of art is one that is more alive than one that's not um, and again, alive in the way that it's it, it it has the life of the creator in it that you participate in when you experience it. Um, but it completely, uh, um, it's, it's no longer that life exists for survival, but actually survival exists for the purpose of greater expressions of life. Um, and so when you have life at the bottom, then everything becomes meaningful. Um, if it's If it's not at the bottom, then it's only ever... And it loses its place completely. It's as if it only—that's the only place it should be. Um, yeah. You must think about this stuff all the time. Um, I'm a slightly obsessive person. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just absolutely fascinated with getting to the bottom of things. Um, mm -hmm. um, and I suppose I've, I felt that, um. I, as in many ways, the world is becoming less and less stable. Um, and lots of the things we've taken for granted aren't holding together quite as well as we hoped. I think it's becoming more and more important to try and have a way of sense-making. Um, and so that's, that's been a big part. So there, there are various um, times in on my sort of religious faith journey where I've not found the structures I'd relied on previously to be as solid as I thought they were. Um, and so it's, it's, been, it's been important for me to try and get back to first principles and find out from those first principles how to build a house on a rock <laughs> rather than on sand, um, so to speak. Is that going to be your second book? <laughs> Got to get one done first. Yeah. So how much more do you have to do with this book? I mean, so we've been going for an hour and a half. And we've only got through two chapters. Um, I, I hope we can do this again. Talk about yeah, the other two it, chapters. Yeah, of course. Um, there is more of it than that, um, but it's less. It's less together. So um, but thank you very much for having me. It's been really, really good fun. I, I'm just I fascinated. I'm fascinated by the way you think about this. Well, first of all, it feels like you're a brother from another mother because um, <laughs> we're thinking about the same things and we're both slightly obsessive about it. But um, maybe it's because of your graphic design background and uh, working with clients, you have found a way to articulate it that is very clear and captures the essence um, in a very powerful way. And I, I just really encourage you to keep working on the book because I do think there's something super important there for people. Um, and I, I love the way you approach these questions and you've obviously thought very deeply about it. I, I, you're taking something, you're, you're zoning in deeply on one aspect of it. Yeah. I'm a very, I'm sort of, maybe I'm ADHD, I don't know. I'm very scattershot. I'm I'm looking broadly across a wide range of topics. 
and fishing out from all those topics where all these things show up. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sort of a gatherer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I haven't found a way to articulate it the way you have, but I greatly admire that. And, and I want to work harder at trying to do that. So well, thank, thank you. you. For, and thank you for making yourself known to me. <laughs> um, if, if you, if you want, you could put the, um, you could put links to the videos in the show notes. Um, Absolutely. Yes. I, I I've not yet made them live, which I need to get on and do, but I'll do that. And I, I don't know if you would be interested in this or not. I don't know what your purpose is for writing the book. Um, there's a guy named Stephen Talbot, who is a... I've reached out to him. Well, you have. Yes. You know his book, Bio... Uh, uh, I've, I've, Biology, I've, 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 Life. His, his uh, website... I read a paper Biology. of his. Well, he's put his whole book online as okay. he's working on it. Yeah. And so you can read the whole book chapter by chapter and he's still working on it, editing as he goes, but he's made it available yeah. to people and I'll send you the link to that. Um, Thank you. But you, I, you might think about doing something like that because what you, I don't know if you're doing that in order to be a money-making endeavor or if you just want to get the information out there. It's much more the latter. The, 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 it's, it's not a great time to be making money from books. Well, I think you could probably find a better way to put it online than Stephen Talbot's um, website with his book is a little bit old school. Yeah. So it's not not as easily accessible as it could be. You have to keep going back to the homepage to get to the next chapter, you know. Yeah. But um, but it's it, wonderful stuff. I read it over and over again. I mean, just when I'm looking for something to read, I read it because he's got such an amazing mind. Yes, um, he's very interesting. I think I read something on um, tensegrity uh, or biotensegrity, which is the relationship between compression and tension within cells and how. What's it called? Bio. Uh, biotensegrity. So um, there's, a, there's an architect and designer you probably know of, um, Buckminster Fuller. Yes. Um, uh-huh. And he came up with this, or I think he nicked from someone else, this term tensegrity, which is um, uh, building through tension as well as compression. Uh, so most houses, most building, well, almost every building is built through primarily compression uh, way of building where you just, bricks are put on top of each other and the, mm-hmm. they compress down and that holds it together. Whereas a suspension bridge is a combination of tension of the of the, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the rods and steel girders with the compression of the concrete. And that, and, and it's, it makes the, it makes use of different materials properties. And what you end up having is is a is a is a uh, a structure that that's that's held together through, through this relationship. And he says that uh, that bodies and cells work in the same mm-hmm. way. And so that we tend to think of ourselves just built on top of bones, built on top of other bones. But actually, the bones are all floating. I'm told in our body through being held together through ligaments and muscles. And so it's it's a very different way of of. Of, of something being built or held together than, mm-hmm. than how we would tend to make things. Anyway, it's a bit of a... a and if t- the tension gets out of balance in the human body, one side or the other, then then the bricks all get out of line. Yes. Then you've got problems, like your knee. I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. You get problems everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, this has uh, been Karen, great. Let's, let's do so this much. again soon. This has just been fantastic. I can't can't wait to talk to you again. Yes. It's yeah. a shame I can't pop over to the US. Um, well, one of these days, I want to get back to England. Um, I enjoyed very much the one time that I did walk around London and went to the National Museum, and it was great. Well, if you do, um, let's meet up. Will do. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.